Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Wood, and my guest today is Jonas Tofterup, Master of Wine. Welcome. Thank you very much. Now, Jonas, you have more qualifications, I think, than anybody I've ever seen in the wine industry, yet you look like you're 16. How on earth? <laughs> How do you do it? <laughs> just, just give us a bit of a chronology. You know, when you're three years old, you became a Master of Wine. When you were five, you got an MSc. Go on, just give us all the stuff that you've done. Go on. <laughs> No, well, it's, it started back. I was just a young kid. Um, my parents always went to the wineries uh, for for their holidays, and and us as as children, my my siblings and myself, we would go with them to to visit wineries around. Yeah, that was part of it. And then my brother, he got into the wine industry when I was about eleven, I think. And when we went to Denmark, who was actually starting to become a what they call it, called Wienkuber in Denmark. They import a lot of bulk wine, so they're doing a lot of bustling and quality controls and importing different wines as well. And uh, I, w- I would want to go with them to work as a go visit family and friends with my parents. It was just too boring, much more interesting to look at the big tanks and especially the bustling line with all the bottles going forwards and backwards. And I remember that summer I got back to Spain and I, was, I went to English school and we had to write an essay what we were doing when we were 25 years old, I would proudly wrote that I would be making wines with my brother at the age of 25. So since then, I actually thought I wanted to go into the, to the wine world. So when I finished uh, so my A-levels, I thought, okay, I want to go into the wine or not. I was 18 years old. And I said, okay, to be sure that I wanted to spend the next five years studying enology and viticulture at university, I wanted to have some practical experience. So I went to Spain. And did a vintage. Why, why Spain, though? Why not? I mean, at your age, how old are you, by the way? Uh, I'm 35. Why, why were you not going off to Bordeaux, some swanky chateau in Bordeaux, or Burgundy, which is like the typical mecca of where, where people want to go and learn, or even California? Why, why that choice? Well, I was, I was only 18, and I grew up in Spain, so it was kind of natural for me to go to back to Spain, where I felt quite comfortable with with the, the language and the culture, and as well my, my brother, he helped me hook me up with that winery. You know, at the age of 18, I just write out to a random winery. I think it's, well, I thought back then it would be difficult maybe to get a get a apprenticeship or, or yeah, stay with the winery. So what was your job? Were you scrubbing buckets or were you doing something more interesting? <laughs> no, it was more interesting than that. So we would be doing a bit of selection tables when the grapes arrived, we were doing a lot of the manual punch down on the different uh, smaller project and batches they were making. We were three who came there to help out at the winery. And so we would be doing, adding the yeasts, uh, taking out samples, doing the bit of the, the basic analysis work where you do take the sugars, you measure the, the alcohol and acidity of, of the, the wines. Um, and then... Were you very much an indoors guy or were you also happy to get out in the vineyard in the winter pruning and, you know, fixing tractor gearboxes? Was it var- was it varied or was it just in the winery? Uh, that my The apprenticeship that I had was for three months. It was during the harvest. So we weren't much out of the, the, the vineyard. So it was just a, a couple of days, actually. 
it was more at the winery that we had to yeah, take care of all the, the different uh, uh, grapes which came in. Of course, everything under the, 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 the winemaking team, we got a lot of experience that way. But why is Malaga so special to you, that particular part of Spain? Well, my, I, I moved here when I was five with my parents, or my parents, they migrated. and forced From Denmark? From Denmark, yeah. As you may know, there's a lot of um, international people who live down here. So my father, he, he was hijacked for a job here for, at a bank in, uh, who had to set up an office, a Danish bank. Uh, so they had a Danish office for Danes, for the Danes on the southern coast of, of Spain. And so it's kind of my, my home to me. I've spent more years here than any other place in, in my life. And now I live here mainly due to my wife. Uh, she's she's from from Andalusia, and uh, it's hard to to get a Spanish woman outside her home region. But you're quite happy there, you know. You don't you know you don't go to bed every night saying, "Oh, I wish I was in Denmark." No, no, not at all. No, I, ever since I moved back to Denmark uh, after spending my childhood in in Spain, I thought I would go back to Spain at some point in my life. Uh, so. It's kind of natural for me. Of course, sometimes I miss me living closer to a winemaking region, um, but you can't have everything, and then you just try to adapt your your professional life uh, according to where where you live, because you have to have a balance between family and and work. So, it looks like Denmark is also building its own wine industry. Have you had much experience of the Danish wines, and you are you involved in in any way in the Danish wine production scene? So, so I, I was actually when I was studying uh, food science and technology in Denmark at the University of Copenhagen. I was actually working for two years at a Danish winery in uh, in Abelur, which is a just like fifteen kilometers outside the center of Copenhagen. So I would cycle out there once or twice a week to help out the the team there. So I had actually hands on uh, viticulture and and winemaking experience in Denmark already back then. I mean, but what sort of varieties do you find in Denmark? What what grows there? What can grow there? Because it's you know fairly northern and it's surrounded by water. Yeah, so so they have many hybrids, basically German hybrids. They've been importing um, Rondo in particular is one that many growers they wanted to put their bets on because Danes they like red wine, so they wanted to make red wine in Denmark. Of course, with the very warm and, tr- and subtropical climate that we have in Denmark. It's it's fantastic to go red wines there. <laughs> Sorry for the irony here on a, on a podcast, but uh, but it it doesn't work that well for the red wines in my in my view. But we do have some some experience making a few rosé wines that does work, and and white and sparkling. That's where I think we can we can make something interesting. But this it's still early days. I think if you think of back in the UK, ten or fifteen years ago. Uh, that's, I think, where Denmark is today. Yeah. Trying to find out which interspecific crossings work the best Yeah, um, in terms of yield and in terms of, um, in terms of uh, plant health as well. Okay, so you were recently involved in judging at the Vinitaly International Five Star Competition. Is that right? Uh, yes, I was. And you were doing Wine Without Walls, I think? Yeah. And that's the organic and sort of natural wine section of the competition. Yeah. And... Uh, do you have an affinity for those kind of wines, the organic and the biodynamic and natural? Um, no, I think organic and biodynamic wines are. I, I definitely do do love them a lot. Um, 
Natural wines, well, depends on, that's a, a, always a discussion uh, in terms of the definition of a natural wine. If it's well made without any faults in terms of Brettanomyces or high volatile acidity or too much acid aldehyde, so that it smells like bruised apple, then I do like natural wines quite a lot. But if but there's just too much um, variation in terms of natural wines and non-sulfite wines. So depending if they're well made, if they are, I do. Okay, and the tasting was this sort of virtual tasting. Did you face any particular challenges with that or not? Or were you quite comfortable with the, this enormous change instead of being face to face at a table with people literally four centimeters away from you doing it on your own? Was that okay for you? Yeah, no, I actually enjoyed it. So I just put it up. I was sitting actually doing it outside on the terrace downstairs. We had to go through the, the 60 wines, um, which was. Really nice. The, the difference is that... You have a barbecue going at the same time or something. <laughs> Music. Yeah, chill out and then took a bathe in the pool when I wanted a break and stuff like that. <laughs> Snorkeling and then a couple of wines. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I of course you, you had a few breaks, but it was... You see, the, um, the competition was a bit different set up in the sense that it was only me basically tasting the one wine, so there wasn't much discussion going on with other judges. So we were a bunch of judges and we all judged different wines. Um, so where you're sitting at uh, one of the competitions, normally you would be tasting the same wine with three or four other judges and then you'll be discussing the wines often and calibrating. And here was basically uh, my choice in order to uh, to how I would judge the wine and that was probably the, the points that the wine got. Though depending on how they were judged and my comments afterwards, then it would be get retasted in, in Italy by another judge afterwards. What do you like as a judge? Are you quite sort of um, quiet and are you someone um, that um, really likes to interject and lead the table? And um, how do you, how do you, uh, what's your way of judging with a group? Um, I, everyone's a bit terrified of masters of wine, right? And you sit at a table and oh my God, I've got two masters of wine on my table. <laughs> Uh, and uh, you know your, your knees start knocking together, um, and um, you sound like a pretty laid back guy, to be honest. No, I I'm quite relaxed. I I think I understand that we've got different preferences. So I think as we've every I respect everybody everybody's tastes. Uh, so if, if people they would judge a wine different than I would, and they would have reasons to do so, I would think that's absolutely fine. But if there's a a wine which has a problem or it's, it's really diluted, really poor quality, then and somebody else judge it quite high. I would say, look, try to retaste it. Try to how do you really find it balanced? How long is it in the palate afterwards? Has it got proper intensity? Um, and just ask questions in order to hopefully lead them to giving a, a lower score and and vice versa. If it was a good wine, then of course try to have somebody by themselves and convince themselves that it's it was it is a better wine. But generally, I don't interfere too much with people. Are there any sort of wine styles that you really struggle with? I mean, one of the classic ones in Italy is a lot of Sagrantino di Montefalco, which is, quotes the most tannic, great variety in the world. I mean, do you have any sort of bugbear varieties that you really can't deal with, or do you just love absolutely everything? I wouldn't say I, I love absolutely everything, but I do enjoy tasting a really wide range of wines. I, uh, I can't say I have trouble with any wines. Uh, no. Brettanomyces, uh, if I find a bit of Brettanomyces in the wines, that I do kind of punish the wines if I have to score them. 
unless it's extremely, extremely subtle. But if it is a bit there, then then I just I'm a winemaker, and it's one of our say uh, defects um, that we do when we find an, a defect or or a um, a problem with the wine, then we try to punish it. Yeah, I mean, I think with Brett, one of the issues apart from the fact, I mean, you know, you can have some wines that are quite nice, but I always think, and I'm not like you, a proper winemaker, but I have worked in wineries and stuff, is is it's a a thing that you should be able to avoid if you're a competent um, winery manager or foreman or foreperson, I should say. Um, You know, you should really have that under control. Um, I think, and um, it's it's an for me it's an avoidable fault. And I'm not saying it's an easily avoidable fault, but it's a, an avo- avoidable fault. I don't know what your thoughts are. I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. I think I've, I know many great winemakers uh, who've had Brettanomyces in the winery, uh, me included, in some wines that I've made. But one thing is that you have it in the winery and you deal with it there, and then you try to say eliminate it or get rid of those wines. Another thing is that if you have a wine with a bit of Brettanomyces and you choose to bottle it and send it on the market, that's an, an issue. But I, I think that sometimes it, it just happens, um, especially if you buy like used barrels from, from other wineries. It's, it's always a w- risk involved that Brettanomyces can, can develop uh, in your wine. So it's, yeah, I can't see there's no way just 100% to avoid it at the winery. There is always a risk involved unless you've got a really low pH in, in your wines and you do take a lot of care with the sulfur. But if you've got higher pH in the wines, then it can be quite hard to, to manage uh, the Brettanomyces. You, you did a little bit of work for Aldi, which is a supermarket chain in Denmark. Um, what sort of things do they ask you to do? Are you full-time or are you a consultant? And if so... Um, what what is the exact um, job that they they give you? Um, I'm a I'm an external consultant for them. I spend one to two days a month consulting them, more or less. So I help them. I have been helping them taste through the the, the portfolio and try to pressure some of the suppliers in order to give put better juice in the in the the bottles, and also been cleaning up in a few bad wines that we had on the shelves and then finding new suppliers and so that's been one of it to try just to clean up the, the fixed portfolio and also adjust it a bit more in terms of okay which SKUs which products do we want on the shelves and on the other hand I've also been helping selecting them wines of the month so once a, once a month we take in a product and we promote it in in the, the magazines that get sent out to consumers and then people can buy these wines so we would buy a small parcel of say six to twelve thousand bottles but you sort of on their on their monthly magazine as well you're a bit of a sort of um, a media public media person as well or was it you just sort of behind the scenes in the supermarket warehouse no i've been also on their media for them so i've been published with the bottles that i've been selecting once a month so in the in the magazines they send out the physical ones and i'm also on the aldi's website uh, if you say aldi.dk, then I'm there under the wine area and all the text that we have there, I've, I've wrote written comments and so forth. I mean, how in terms of the Danish market, I mean, what is hot at the moment and what do you think are the, the, the trends for the future in the Danish market? So hot and what has been hot for the last maybe 20 years in Denmark is, is red wines with very soft tannins, quite rich fruit and residual sugar. These Apassimento-style wines that you find from from Italy. Um, I think Denmark is probably one of the biggest consumers of Amarone, 
in the world, at least per capita, I'd, I'd like to think. And of course, the Amarones are quite expensive. Um, so there's a, and for Pete Danes, they like it. So there's been delivered a whole big portfolio of different, so these Apacimento style wines from, from Puglia and also from, from the Veneto, which are very, very, very successful. So, I mean, all of those wines you made, they're sort of, they, you know, you would, in three words, you say, you know, big reds were slightly sweet in some cases. So is that is that um, too much of a, of a character? No, I think that's, that's what been, that has been, been and still is very, very popular in the, the Danish market. But there is also a trend now towards rosé. Rosé has been growing the last three years. Very, very... Sagrantino to rosé. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think a, a very positive one. And also white wines are, are increasing. So you do see there is a certain trend towards white and, and rosés in particular. On-premise or for off-premise? Off These are, are off premise statistics basically if you look at the danish market only five percent of all the volume is consumed on premise okay so it's, it's the vast majority if you take the uk for example it's 20 percent on on premise so it Denmark is, has a very very small on trade market so um you're teaching wset is that correct yeah you run the iberian wine academy and um yes yes and how's that i mean how are you um, do you have to go there physically uh, during COVID or can you do, do that again online? Um, I only do the classes physically where people, they, they show up and we do the classes. It's not a full-time job by, by any means. I run four, maybe five courses a year. That's basically it, uh, all in Malaga. So you recently helped edit the technical material for the, w, for the Wine and Spirit Education Trust's diploma um, can you tell us a little bit about what that involved? Um, yeah, so so the, the material was, was developed by, well, it was already there and they've been re-updating it for when they launched uh, the new diploma last summer. And as I'm a winemaker and I have a good relationship with the WSCT, then they asked me if I wanted to edit the, the material they had. So they sent me all the material and then I just... Yeah, looked through it and edited it and came up with additions that I thought were quite relevant, uh, giving my theoretical background, but also my practical background in, in producing wines. So just give us an example of that, because what you're saying is something that I absolutely applaud. I think it was very much information-led. I don't think that it, there's not much waffle in the WSET. It's quite to the point and quite factual, the in, information you change then or what did you what did you add so it was more it was more in terms of what has to be included what i think is, is relevant so one thing is the use of manoproteins that could be one of the things that i would add okay because the many wineries are actually using it but nobody really talks about it or the use of rectified musk concentrate to add with a residual sugar or the use of gum arabic these kinds of things which are very relevant for to making certain styles and for, for the cheaper wines especially, it's quite relevant, but nobody really talks about it. But it's it's used really massively, I think, uh, for a course like the WCT Diploma. I think it's, it's vital that people with this level of knowledge in the wine industry, they should also know what what is really happening at the wineries and what is legal. Yeah, it's good to hear that because um, I think one of the things that natural wine has shone a torch into, and, and organic and biodynamic as well, 
is just how much correction can go on in a winery to make a, a wine that is um, ready to go on the shelf. And I think until people woke up to the fact that wine isn't quite so cuddly as, as we thought it was, um, by have, actually having that knowledge and by, by shining a light into those dark corners like your, that you've done by changing that syllabus is a very, very important thing, I think, for the future of our industry. So well done you on that. That's really the fact that they've asked you to do it is wonderful. And the fact that you've, they've actually chosen you and you've done that is, um, I, I give you, you know, 10 out of 10 for that. Well done. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I, it, I really enjoyed doing it. I think it's, uh, it's fantastic material. And I'm a big fan of the WZT. It's, it's a great program, really. Do you see any other future changes? I mean, maybe in terms of um, probably not your forte, but I mean, the, the, the demographic of students or the, again, the way the syllabus is either taught or um, created. Do you see any more changes in the future for that? Or do you think it's fixed for a while now? The WST, they're always working on updating the material. Um, so last year, they also removed the spirits part of the level two. And now they're working on updating the, the level three materials, also deciding on what they, what has to be added and what has to be removed. But I'm not involved in that. I just did the technical part of the diploma. But they are currently working, as mentioned, uh, on, on updating the level three. So they, it's a constantly updating, but it's it's also a difficult thing to do because they're very tied up in terms of how many words and how much time can be dedicated to the WSET because if they choose, say, to add another page or two pages on Italy or on Spain, for example, that means, okay, they would have to add another hour of lecturing, which means that all the approved programs uh, um, providers around the world, they would probably have to increase the amount of teaching hours, which would then result in increased expenses and so forth. So it, they're really locked down to, to what is currently existing uh, in these these books, so it's a, it's big decisions and has big consequences for their yeah the mechanics of um, putting a syllabus together. It's not just about what's on the syllabus; it's how long it is. Now you know you're not much of a linguist. Uh, you speak Danish, English, French, Spanish, German, but not Italian. So that's a that's a black mark. It's the first black mark you've got during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> very very disappointing, mate. I'm sorry. Um, but um, and when you teach, I mean, do, do you get a real thrill about being able to teach in, in different languages, um, or do you just only just do it in one language? Um, I, I teach in English and in Spanish for the for the WSCT at least. I, I enjoy both languages very very much, in, in particularly Spanish for Spanish because of course with my appearance and with my some of my wordings phrases they can of course hear that I'm a foreigner. And it's just fun to make fun of myself, basically, in front of the class and have them laugh, have a laugh about it. And it's just a El Giri who's making a, state, a mistake again. El Giri is what they call the foreigners here in, in this part of, of Spain. Have a bit of self-irony. I enjoy that a lot. you got a sense of humor, which is great. Um, where do you see yourself in, you and your family, um, personally and professionally, in 10 years' time? Do you think you'll still be in Spain? Still doing what you're doing? Or have you got any other plans, master plans? Um... Well, I in 10 years' time, I'd still be living here where I live right now, I think. I don't, can't see myself move away from here. We're very, very happy here, uh, Beatriz and myself, my wife. Uh, but I do see myself moving more into production again. I am a winemaker, so uh, I'd like to see myself produce my, my own range of wines in, in Spain. 
for the for the international market. Really? So there would be Spanish Spanish wines that you would present on the international market? Yeah. Okay. And so what sort of grape varieties are your or styles do you think you would focus on um, in terms of economics and business sense? And also which varieties do you love that maybe are less commercial? Um, so I would be focusing probably around uh, the Monastrel grape, the Mouvedre of, of France. It is a Spanish grape variety. And I have it was where I worked my first vintage in in Yekla, and my brother he he and I we actually been making a small family project there since two thousand and four. Um, so I see us yeah develop more wines from from that area. But personally, I would also like to work with the Mencia grape from Bierzo in the northwestern corner of Spain, and also work with. More in Galicia, with Albariño, the Godello, the Trechadura, but also Mencia grown in, in Galicia. These crisp and vibrant wines. I love them. Yeah, it's quite a nice little range you've got there. You've got a sort of thumping red and, a, and some um, mouth-tingling white in there. So uh, Yekla is interesting, isn't it, as a region? Um, it was kind of like it was sort of a bulk wine region for a while, and then, it, then it sort of upped its game. Yeah, yeah, it, it has been quite a... <laughs> big producer of bulk but it's because it hasn't been they haven't been good at selling themselves but it's really increasing now in terms of popularity I'd say and if you look back historically uh, I think one of the oldest ruins of, of a winery in Spain is actually found very 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 close to the city of Yecla so they've got a very long history and when you retire obviously you say you're, gonna, you're stuck in Spain you reckon for the rest of your life um, in your retirement what are you going to do you're going to completely get away from wine and become I don't know a trapeze artist or or an elephant trainer or something what are you going to do <laughs> yeah uh, I, I don't think I would ever give up working in the wine world to some extent I will always be be working I think um, probably a bit in teaching and and helping young people develop their careers in the world of wine because it is it is very challenging there's many options but it's also a difficult industry to make a living in so i i could see myself mentoring a lot of young people in the, in the wine industry excellent that's a very nice note to to finish on um jonas Toftorup, master of wine um fascinating interview i hope we get you back again in a year or so to find out again exactly what you've been doing but um uh, you're a very good communicator and uh, you can see why um, you've got a very agile brain and passing those exams was no was no fluke at all. And it's lovely to hear that you've got a background in the in the getting your hands dirty side of the industry as well as the, the sort of sales and marketing and strategic areas of, of the wine of the wine business. You're, you are the complete master of wine. You've got many years ahead of you and um, we wish you every success. Jonas Toftorup, thank you very much. Monty, thank you so much. It was been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I hope to have a glass of wine with you one day soon, once this is all. Glass Morvedra. Be very good. Absolutely. <laughs> Ciao. Thanks a lot. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.